You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. I can't tell you how much pushback we got between 2005 and 2008. Here we are publicly out there saying, you know, we had headline letters, beware of banks bearing gifts, talking about why is the Federal Reserve not taking away the punch bowl and instead stoking it. And we got tremendous pushback from people who said, you don't know what you're talking about, you're not economists, you don't understand anything, you're really, you're being very disruptive and very stupid. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of My Life in Four Trades. Joining me today is Paul Hodges, the chairman of New Normal Consulting and author of the popular financial report, The PH Report. Enjoy the conversation. Hi, Paul. How are you? I'm well, thank you very much, Maggie. Yes. Well, we're so pleased to have you on My Life in Four Trades. Yeah, thank you. Before we jump into your trades, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Where did you grow up and what was childhood like for you? I grew up in London, England, and I went to school there. Then I went up to university and came back to London to work again. It was a fairly traditional kind of uh, behavior. And then I joined a couple of NGOs working on world development. And then I joined what was then the UK's largest company, ICI, formerly known as Imperial Chemical Industry, you know, because of the empire. Uh, I believe, you know, c- coming up to July 4. <laughs> <laughs> a little reminder. <laughs> a little reminder, yes. <laughs> oh, we remember, Paul. <laughs> oh, we remember. And then, uh, so I joined ICI, worked in London as a sales side commercial graduate, went to become a product manager, went to uh, Houston, Texas to uh, trade in oil, and then carried on moving up the ladder, ended up running one of ICI's largest businesses. And then when ICI began to break up, I moved into consulting for a US firm and got into the dot-com world and exciting things like that, worked out of San Francisco, really, a really great time. And then we set up New Normal Consulting, a group of ex-senior people from, I think, from the chemical industry, companies that you know and love, perhaps, or not, Shell, BASF, and Lionel Barzell, BP, and so on. We discovered a new sort of niche for ourselves. We were doing quite well up to 2008 because... People knew that we knew the industry and we knew how to keep our mouths shut when necessary. And we knew very much because Petrochemicals understands the US oil and US housing and auto market that we were heading for a major financial crash. And so we were very, very prominent in that writing letters to the Financial Times, which they kindly printed and other things. And so when the crash happened, we suddenly developed a new market of investors who said, well, you know, why did you manage to do this? So we explained that. And we wrote a book, Boom, Gloom and the New Normal, talking about demographics and how the influence of the baby boomers had created a boom. But now we were moving into a different world. The title was Boom, Gloom and the New Normal, how the Western baby boomers are changing demand patterns again. And so since then, we've really worked 
in sort of 50% of so of our time with investors, 50% of our time in companies. So we're, we're in that kind of sweet spot where we can see either side of, of the divide, if you like. Yeah, which I've always thought is so incredibly useful. It's interesting that you started out in NGOs, though, and world development. That's a sort of different training ground for somebody who eventually moves into markets. Well, in those days, it wasn't. When I applied to join ICI, I was actually interviewed by somebody you know, fairly senior who had started life working for Ralph Nader. Ah. And, you know, companies in those days didn't want clones. They wanted people who were thinking for themselves. They could teach me commercial skills, but could they teach me to look around and see what was going on? They wanted people to know, you know who, who knew what was happening in the outside world, who looked outside the window, if you like. And, you know, if you sort of look through my career, that's been what we've always done, which what people have always liked. Yeah, that's an excellent point, right? You want diversity of thought everywhere. And I think somewhere along the line, we kind of lose our way in that. Let's jump in and talk about your first trade, which is one of your best. And that's in the early 80s, if I'm correct, and a stock pick from a broker that you knew through ICI. So sort of set the scene for us. What's going on in your life around this time? So I joined ICI and it was understood that if you at that time started in the London sales office, which was convenient because I was I was living there, and you started on the desk inside, they taught you a bit about commercial world, and then you moved out as a sales rep. And then after moving out as a sales rep, the next step up would be as a product manager, which was up in the northeast of, of England, in Teesside, near Newcastle. That move duly came around, and we moved up. At that time, in the early 80s, it was fairly clear, I think, that we'd be lucky enough to own a house in London, house prices in the Northeast had hardly moved, and one couldn't imagine that they would continue in the way that London was moving at the I, time. I just want to interject and say that's because now we think there has been, to some extent, a sort of renaissance in some of the northern cities in England have become trendy. I'm sure there are people that still debate that to this day. But back then, it was very different, right? That was sort of more the working class, the heavy industry in England. I mean, it, it didn't seem like the same economy as, say, London back then, right? Well, I'll give you an example. When I went for my interview with ICI up in Teesside, there were four of us were at second interview in that round, and the driver took us back through the middle of Middlesbrough, and one of the girls who'd been interviewed looked out of the window and said, oh, this is awful. And the driver said, well, love, if you don't get the job, I reckon if I bring you this way, you won't worry too much. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but uh, you know, on, the, on the other hand, the people were always very warm, very friendly, and it was a great place to live. I believe that. I have a, a lot of friends from Manchester, and I've always had a really soft spot for the the different people I've met from the north of England. So I'm with you on that, Paul. So you make your way up there, maybe not so glamorous, but you're doing well, it sounds like. When I was a rep, ICI, just to explain, was the largest company in the UK, had the largest pension fund, and so it access to all the brokers' reports. And as a sales rep, I was dealing with the paint and the resin industry companies like Unilever and International Paint and so on. And so I put myself on the list to get those reports. And some of the reports I thought were pretty good. And there was one report, a broker, uh, Savary Mill. And I thought every time I read their reports, I thought, gosh, I'm learning something here. When I was actually visiting these people, perhaps not quite every week, but certainly every fortnight, you know, and you'd think, well, you would know everything. But 
they knew something better. When I knew we were moving up, I went to them and I said, look, I'm going to have, when I sell the house in London, move up to the, uh, up to the northeast, I'm going to have 25,000 or so spare, which I would like to invest on the basis that I will then, if I get moved back to head office at some point, be able to afford to move. So they selected a portfolio for me. I would add, if you look back at my career as I was for this interview, it took me about 10 years or so to really start to learn about investing. You know, I was involved with business. I was involved with, you know, big deals and, and so on at that stage. But investing was difficult. You know, I read everything I could, Ben Graham and so on. That's why Real Vision is so great now. So I bought this portfolio and I would follow the movements, you know, sort of every month or so. And then one of these shares began to move up. And I thought, oh my goodness, oh, this is, you know, and I, I you know, I, it sounds funny, and it, but it wasn't at the time. And I was thinking, oh, look, you know, it went up, it was two and a half thousand pounds to start with, it went to three thousand, it went to three thousand. Oh, I'm sure it's going to collapse. I mean, it must collapse. I mean, it's just going to collapse. So, so I rang. Why did rang you think broker. that? Why did you think it was going to collapse? Why didn't you just oh, think of getting because, rich? Because, because in those days, we didn't have the Federal Reserve saying what's good for the stock market is good for the United States. We had the Bank of England and we had interest rates at 14, 15%. We had recessions every three or four years. We had the Arab oil boycott when I got issued with World War II ration coupons in order to buy petrol. You went down to the high street because there was a three-day week because of the miners' strike. On the Consumer Advice Bureau, they would say, oh, you're going to have power between 9 and 12 on Wednesday and then between 2 and 5 on Thursday and so on. Yeah, this was a very tough time. I mean, we didn't realise it was a tough time. If you compare it with my parents who'd lived through you know, the depression and bombed every night in London, this was not tough. <laughs> but, you know, it looks tough by, by comparison. So anything that was moving like that in your mind seemed excessive, seemed like something that someone would stop or it was out of whack with everything else that was going on. So naturally it couldn't last. That was what you were thinking? I'd never been in this position before where something had moved up that fast and I didn't really understand. You know, one of the things I learned later on is that if you read the newspaper commentary, forget it. You know, they can't tell you what's going on because they don't know. They guess. When I was trading oil, you know, I used to talk to lots of correspondents and so on. I never told a lie because telling a lie is silly. But do I have to tell them what my position is? No. If I'm short a product and I want to buy some, do I have to tell you, oh my goodness, the market is tight and I'm really struggling? I go, well, Maggie, yeah, people tell it's tight, don't they? But I don't think if I had a, you know, if I needed to buy anything, Maggie, I don't think I'd have a problem, to be honest. You know, I'm not lying. You know, I'm just talking my position. And that's what you get in the press. You know, Paul Hodges of ICI said, sort of thing, you know, that major trader said, and so on. And yeah, you know, I mean, sometimes by accident, if you like, I'm, I'm talking in my book, a lot of the time I'm hiding what I'm doing. So I actually rang the broker and I said, Simon, I think we ought to sell this. And he sort of calmed me down and said, no, 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 it's all right, Paul. We know that there's a bid being put together. He said, don't worry. It may not happen, but if they don't bid, then somebody else will. So, you know, don't worry. It'll be okay. And I thought, oh, well, okay. He knows better than me. <laughs> and he did. It, it was a couple of years. They bought it for two and a half thousand and they sold it for five thousand. So I doubled my money in two years on that particular trade. And if you think about how trades work out, you, know, you can either be right for the right reasons 
or you could be right for the wrong reasons. You could be wrong because you got it wrong, or you could be wrong because something happened that you couldn't expect. On this occasion, I was right for the, for the wrong wrong reasons, in that it wasn't me that did yeah. it. I would have sold. Yeah. But the guy who knew what he was doing knew what he was doing. And what made you listen to him, though? We, you know, we just discussed the fact that you always have to be a bit suspicious about what people's motives are and what they really know versus what they want to happen. And I think that there's a lot of that that goes around now where people do need to sort of make sure their financial advisor really knows what they're talking about, because certainly a lot of them mean well, but they're also just sort of guessing. What gave you confidence to listen to this guy? Is it because you singled them out in the first place because you felt like they did really know their stuff? Three things, really. One was personal experience, that I've been reading these reports you know, by him and his colleagues for three years, and you know, they made a lot of sense over that three years. So I thought his judgment or their judgment was pretty good. Secondly, I was working for ICI. Clearly, ICI was a very important client of theirs. And so they were unlikely you know, to try and make a little bit out of me because I was moving up the system, if you like, and I could make my voice heard. The, the third was, it was a different era. Yes, I was, you know, people laugh at this. Oh, but you were paying 1.5% or something. Yeah, I was paying 1.5%, but he doubled my money. So his job wasn't to do bundles, wasn't to press me to do something else. His job was to look after my money on the ground. So most of his clients were obviously much bigger and so on. But you know, the idea was that once you became a client, you got good service, you got reliable advice. And if you didn't know, he didn't know. He told you, I don't know this, this isn't our area and so on. And so you stayed with them and they earned their money on commissions. So when you get rid of commissions, well, obviously you then get rid of advice because you can't afford to do it. That's why in our business, you know, people now and again, not very often actually, but now and again, they say, oh, your $10,000 fee for the report is a bit high. And I say, look, you know, it's good advice and we've got a proven track record. You can get cheaper, but the price of bad advice is usually higher than our cost. All the people in December who were telling you, oh, 2022 is going to be a banner year. It's going to be fantastic. You know, it's really it's going to go. And we were the only ones almost who were saying, no, no, actually, I'm sorry. Your expertise from the chemical industry tells us this is going to be pretty bad. You know, if, if you listen to the others, you lost a lot more than the 10 grand you were paying us. It is the whole experience, as you say, you know, the change in how things are incentivized has kind of created a deterioration of trust across the board, don't you think? When I went to Houston which was around the time of the Big Bang in the States. And I automatically signed up for an IRA and so on. And I had a broker there. You know, it was with one of the large companies and so on. And there was no fiduciary duty at all. He would put you into any kind of rubbish, really, in order to manage their flows. You know, they were told, get rid of this. And so he got rid of that. And luckily, we didn't lose too much on that because my friends in the industry said, no, no, you can't trust any of these guys. But when they tell you to sell, they've already bought, you know, and the other way. Yeah, it's difficult. And I think there are people who are trying to do the right thing. But as you say, you know, when the industry changes, this is kind of the, you know, what happens. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. Let's get to your second trade. And this is a commodity play 
and it's around gasoline and it's one of your worst. What set the scene for us for this one? So what time frame are we talking about here? When is this happening and where are you? So we're talking about the mid-1980s. I'm a fresh guy who arrived. I mean, I've been trading in the oil markets now for three or four years from the UK. And ICI chairman had said, look, you know, rather than doing this from the UK, let's actually set up a trading office in Houston, Texas. So we went out and, you know, I knew people there and so on. So we were trading. But of course, I didn't understand the market, but I thought I did. You know, I was in that period where you sort of, well, I've been doing this quite a while. And it's a bit like when you arrive in the States and you think you're talking the same language. And you don't. <laughs> you know, there's, there's English and there's American. And this was what went wrong for me there, that I was buying gasoline. Gasoline was going up. Uh, we got to the end of April into early May. And I thought, well, obviously, you know, I, I know about July 4. I know about the start of the driving season. So, you know, I should carry on buying gasoline and, you know, making some money here. I, you know, I've got the hang of this thing now. I'm, you know, I'm doing OK. And it wasn't OK. Actually, the price went down. You know, luckily, I knew enough to sell and get out of it. I talked to my friends in the industry and said, well, why isn't gasoline going? They said, don't you understand? The gasoline has to get into the colonial pipeline or some other way up to New York. It has to be booked weeks, months ahead, and it has to be there on the rack so that the dealers can come in and take it out to the gas stations so that it's there for July 4. So if it hasn't left Houston or the Gulf Coast by around the end of April, it doesn't get there. Oh, I went, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Now I see why I lost money. <laughs> that's being wrong for the wrong yeah. reasons. And that's also the need to really understand what you're trading, right? Really understand the market, which I think a lot of us think we do when you have a little bit of success and a little bit of knowledge, but then you get that other level of really kind of mastering the intricacies of something. It really took me 10 to 15 years to understand all the main dimensions of investing and trading. Not to say that I understood how to do it, but at least I understood all the things that could go wrong, because that's the main thing. You know, things go right, yeah, fine, no problem. Things go wrong, but not so, not so good. And commodities are notoriously difficult. Did you worry after that setback? Did it affect your confidence level at all? No, no, because I, once I knew what the mistake, the great thing about investing or, or anything about life is you learn much more from your mistakes than you do from being right. If you're being right, well, you know, so I can look back and show how I learned perhaps from the experience with Savary Mill on my first trade. What worries me is that you get central bankers and they don't learn from their mistakes. So the, in 2000, you had the dot-com crash. And, you know, you can argue about whether Y2K, you know, many people won't know what Y2K is, but, you know, all the chips that we'd had installed in everything around the world only had two digits. And then suddenly in about 92, people realised, well, well, it's not going to be 98, 99. Oh, how are we going to manage zero? Will everything stop? But it was realised in 92, ICI, as I said, was the biggest company in the UK. Uh, you know, we set up a task force with all the other major companies, with the government. Everybody did that around the world and so on. Now, you could argue that Greenspan it was on the precautionary side that, OK, we need to put money in the ATMs, if you like, and so on, ahead of uh, Y2K. I don't think he did, but you could argue that. But what you could never argue 
was that having made that mistake and seen what happened, because, you know, stocks took off like a rocket. Mine, I was making money from it. But I did have the sense to sell at Christmas. You know, I knew that this was not going to last. And for the Fed to then come back with subprime and do that again, I mean, that was that was really bad. And to do it again after 2008, I think that's impossible to forgive. And if you read a book like Lords of Easy Money and you see the background to those decisions and, you know, people like James Bull are trying to fight against them and the politics that were used against him to do this. And yet he was absolutely right. I think that is unforgivable. Now we're getting the, the comeuppance for it. So in answer to your question, it didn't at all. Trading is difficult. One of the best pieces of advice I had was from a very successful trader in Houston who said, look, Paul, if you look at all the evidence, the best traders in the world get it right about 57% of the time. So 57%. Because things happen that you can't possibly know about. You know, I had some close shaves, uh, I can tell you. But failure is 49%. So you're looking at a very narrow margin there between 57% is success, 49% is failure. And so you've got to expect that things will happen that you can't. If you look at the oil markets, for example, I mean, everything is happening to them every day of the, of the week. You, nobody can possibly keep tabs on it. So no, it didn't affect my confidence. Uh, I just learned a bit. Yeah. Do you <laughs> think that we have an unhealthy fear of failure now or we've created an investing environment, a financial economy where failure is not allowed? Well, the thing I find strange is, you know, my investment manager is my wife. And, you know, she's quite happy if I want to talk to her about something over the breakfast table or something. You know, she'll come out with her own ideas. She's been doing this 40 years. So uh, <laughs> she's kind of, uh, you know, is quite experienced at it. You know, she doesn't say to me every night, well, how's the portfolio doing? She doesn't say to me every month, how's the portfolio doing? That's not the timescale on which we're looking at. We've returned over the years with some ups and downs around 20, 21% annually. But that's not been because we were looking at the markets and trading in and out. We have, for example, my first trade, best stocks are the ones that you buy. You check that the story is still right. And other than that, what the market does, you don't really care about. In the end, it will come out okay. And I think also, if you understand that failure is going to be almost half of your experience, and that's where managing your risk becomes really important. I think that's going to bring us to your third trade, which involves put options following the 2000-2001.com collapse. And this is, interestingly, one of your worst. But you had said to us earlier that you did really well during the dot-com boom. So sort of talk us through the circumstances around that period. By this stage, so sort of 15, 20 years after I started investing, so I was getting the hang of it, really. And I could see that the uh, dot-com was dramatically overvalued. But on the other hand, it was quite fun. You could see the signs that it was coming to an end, so you could sell. And okay, I sold two or three months early. You know, I sold at Christmas and uh, the top came in March. Well, who cares really? And then I was buying puts. You know, I've never ever sold an open option. That's like picking up pennies in front of a, of a bulldozer. But I'm quite happy to buy puts. And if I lose the premium, I lose the premium. I'll get it back next time. And we got to uh, middle of September 2001. And I thought it was a Tuesday. I thought, actually, I'll be a bit clever this time because I was doing quite well. 
And I thought, you know, I'll close my puts and take that money. And instead of actually just rolling over into the December series, I'll actually wait for a day or two because I think the market might bounce up. And of course, that was the day. Of, I'm talking about London time here, so it was morning, my time when I was closing things down and not rolling over. And then, of course, in the afternoon, my time morning in the States was 9-11. And so this I raise, because obviously it's just an example of stuff happens. And, you know, I'm not saying that 9-11 hopefully will ever happen again, but all sorts of things like 9-11 do happen. It's inevitable. You know, had I done what I normally did, then I would have done well without knowing it, really, because obviously the market tanked. I'm not worried about that because the tragedy was far worse than that. But it's just that one has to understand that you can be too clever in this game. And I should have known this because when I was trading, I went up to see the guys at Sun Oil in Philadelphia and I was were taken around the uh, the trading office by the head of department, and there was a guy sitting there on, on, a, on a bench, but reading a paper. And I said, what's he doing reading a paper? Oh, he's our best trader, they said. You, you're your best trader? I mean, does he do it by... Telepathy? You know, <laughs> you know he made an, an amazing amount of money in quarter one, he said. This was April. He said, an amazing, amazing amount of money. And so we said to him, right, you're now going to get overconfident because, you know, you've been right for the right reasons. You've been right for the wrong reasons. Everything's been going your way. Now you will give it all back and more. So you get your bonus. You can come into the office. You, you know, you're not being fired or anything like that. You can go for lunch with everybody and so on, but you cannot trade. And I thought, wow, well, that was risk management by his boss of the highest order. And that's also resisting greed, though, right? This guy could have easily, the thinking would be to put it all, put all the chips in front of him because he's doing so well. Exactly, exactly. You know, and when I look back on it, you know, in a very minor way, I'd fallen victim to that sort of arrogance and overconfidence. Look, I've been doing very well. I know what's going on here. I know how it's on. Well, actually, stuff happens. You don't. How do you know when to make that decision, though? Because, I mean, and 9-11 was sort of the mother of all black swans, right? It was just so, it was so horrific and hard to get your head around. And it didn't only, it wasn't just an event or an attack. It was at the heart of the financial system. So at this point, you know, we're thinking, we don't know what's going to happen. It's the great unknown. So how do you deal with that kind of the randomness of that? You could have argued, supposing the market had been going up and I'd been buying calls, well, you could argue that, that you, know, you know, I made the right decision, I suppose. But I wasn't. I was saying, you know, my trading philosophy was completely divorced from geopolitical events. And if I just followed what I was doing, if I'd done in September what I'd done in June, you know, I wouldn't be talking about it today. I just carried on and, yeah, I actually got, it turned out a bit better than I expected, you know, for reasons that were not my, uh, <laughs> nothing to do with me. Uh, I'm a very, very unfortunate. Um, it is the point, and, you know, Ben Graham has made this, Bob Farrell has made this point, Peter Lynch made this point. You know, you have to settle into a pattern of trading that makes sense for you and you have to stick to it. When you step outside of that, you know, you're going to make mistakes. 
Okay, fine, you know, but are you, is your batting average, as it were, going to get up, you know, over 0.5 towards 0.57, or is it going to drop down to 0.49? You know, I know the numbers are wrong, but you know, you know what I mean. And if you're doing what you think you should be doing all the way through, well, you'll realise you've made a mistake and you'll, you'll get out of it. It's when you're stepping out and you are overconfident that you make the mistakes, the real mistakes. Mm. Did realising that stuff happens and that you can be blindsided by something like that, did that experience make you more risk averse? No. The point about, I think it was uh, Ben Graham who said an investment is a gamble where you've tried to tilt the odds in your favour. We know things can go wrong. You know, I can fall over going out the door. You know, and yes, I should have held on to the guardrail or whatever, you know, and so on. So life is like that. And the question you have to ask yourself is, does my system, which I've been doing for 20 or so years by that stage, does it actually stack up? Does this downside mean that actually there was something fundamentally flawed? Well, no. If I look back on it, what was fundamentally flawed was my own idiocy in not doing what I should have done. I can't blame anybody else but myself. You know, I'd like to blame the world. I'd like to, you know, and so on, but I can't. It was me. Once you accept that, you just carry on, just as if you've fallen over in the street. You get up and you're a bit sort of shaky to start with, and you're a bit more careful too, but you, you carry on. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So, your fourth and final trade is one of your best. And I like that it's your best, at least so far, with the caveat in. And that is trading the Fed pivot to inflation. So, this is present day. This is right now. What informed your decision making on this trade and how much of the earlier successes or failures sort of fed into this? Everything feeds into it. It comes back to a basic premise you know, what are we trading on? What is our niche here? And apart from experience, our niche is the chemical industry. And the chemical industry is the third largest industry in the world after energy and agriculture. And it's very early in the value chain. So we see things that are happening six to nine months ahead of the street. That is inevitable. So we saw in our April client report, for example, last year, we started to talk about inflation risk. And we said, this is coming. And we could see more and more inflation risk coming. And again, it took six to nine months before this happened. If you've been in our position, I can't tell you how much pushback we got between 2005 and 2008. Here we are publicly out there saying, you know, we had headline letters, beware of banks bearing gifts, talking about why is the Federal Reserve not taking away the punch bowl and instead stoking it. And we got tremendous pushback from people who said, you don't know what you're talking about. You're not economists. You don't understand anything. You're really, you're being very disruptive and very stupid. Yeah. And this is back before the great financial crisis. This is you seeing the signs of that. We saw that for three years that we were told we didn't know what we were talking about. And what was good about our position was that we kept saying, look, this is going to happen. It's going to happen. And then in the summer of 2008, we said, right, that's it. This is now happening. 
we forecasted, you know, we went on the oil price and the oil price began to fall and we said, that's it, that's the signal, it's gone. And still people told us. I mean, even after Lehman Brothers went, in early October, people were telling us, you don't know what you're talking about. We've got record order books for the fourth quarter. To which you know, I said, well, we said, well, see what your order books are like by the end of the quarter. You know, those people who said they had record order books maybe did 30 or 40% of what they expected. So we got used to being told that we didn't know what we were talking about. And of course, you do check it and so on. But when you know, you do know what you're talking about. So we knew that inflation was coming. And then we knew that the Fed was finally going to have to respond. And so we knew that interest rates would be going up. This was not difficult to see. You've had a 40-year downturn from rates of sort of 10 or 12 and you've gone down in these tram lines and you've come down below where obviously we expected, you know, down to 0.3 or something. You know, fine, that's it. You usually overshoot, as Bob Farrell would say. But that's fine. And then it starts to pick up. And now you say, well, clearly it's going to go to 5%. Oh, I can't go to 5%. Well, the whole thing. Guys, I've been through interest rates of 20%. You know? Oh, no, you don't know this situation. This Is it hard being... A contrarian? Do you find that frustrating or difficult? Well, we're not. We're not. We're not contrarians. We're just telling you what we're seeing. But but isn't that contrarian if nobody believes you? <laughs> I understand you say you're telling the truth, but you certainly when when there are people who. Well, we have we have our we have our clients. Our circulation manager says you know he's never seen such a high level of renewals. I mean, you basically have to you know, go out of business before you cancel the subscription. So the people who like what we're doing, like it. And the other people, well, if they're not subscribers, they don't have to like it, do they? <laughs> so. has, your, has your decision-making changed? I mean, you obviously have the benefit of all this experience and really having this deep understanding of this part of the market that is on the forward-looking side, which is... So fantastic. But do you think your decision-making has changed or it's deepened? You know, how's that experience help? Because we're much more confident about the quality of the decision-making that we do, because we've got access to some wonderful sources of information. We've learned over the years, you know, we've got hundreds of years of experience between us of sifting all this and of mistakes and so on, and we go, oh, no, don't want to do that one, no. no. Make another mistake, but don't do the same one, please, sort of thing. You know, there is a bit of wisdom of crowds that we can discuss things and somebody will say, well, actually, there is a flaw here. Oh, yes, there is. Mm, thank you. So we do get better as a result of that by being fairly open. But I think what's really important is that we've learned that most of the time we do know what we're doing. And so it doesn't particularly matter. You know, We'll always listen to somebody telling us why we're wrong, because occasionally they can be right. So I don't, you know, we don't mind doing that. But usually what you can find is when people get aggressive, it's because they're actually uncertain. We're not aggressive. We give you what our view and we explain to you why it's there. And if you don't like it and you don't think that's right and it's not helpful, well, okay, fine. You know, it's, we've, we've just done what we said we would do. I think that's our key. We are personally quite in, in individually quite relaxed about it. It's not, we've been doing this long enough now we kind of think we'll probably get through all right. I just wonder what your advice would be to investors just starting out. I would read everything in the way of, of history. And then I would try and, and I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm you know, old fashioned, I, I write it down. I mean, I type it these days, obviously. 
you know, but I draw my own record because one of the things that annoys me is when people say, as they did after 2008, well, I always thought that would happen. You know, I always thought US housing was overvalued and so on. And I'm going, well, did you say that? Did you say that in writing? Because you know, what you're actually doing is you're failing to learn from your mistakes. We write it down. This is what we think is happening and why we think it's happening. So as you said, we, you know, we have this discipline of why do we think something is happening? What do we think is the result of that? How is that going to manifest itself? When is it going to happen and how? Our former CEO, who was with Shell, as I said, we have a balance of views here. And I, I tend to be up at the sort of why and the, and the what sort of thing. And, and John would say, look, Paul, if you can't tell me when, I'm really not interested. <laughs> Timing is everything. You know, you know, and, 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 you know, it was a very valuable you know, reminder that, yeah, we've got all the theories in the world, but if you don't know when, it doesn't matter. Who are the people who've influenced me most? Ben Graham, obviously, the intelligent investor. Bob Farrell, you know, Merrill Lynch, you know, being there. I mean, he did, a, did an interview with, you know, a month ago. He's 90 years old. I paid something dollars to Dave Rosenberg to listen to it. Poor guy, is not quite up to, you know, he wasn't feeling very well and so on, but God, you know, it was the most valuable thing I've heard all this year. He's terrific. There was a guy called Peter Lynch who ran the Magellan Fund, which at the time became the biggest mutual fund in the world, larger than the GDP of most countries. And Peter was very generous with his time and his advice. And he always said, look, individuals can't compete with me because I've got all this information, Magellan, every government comes and talks to me and everybody else. And so on and so on. But what you can be is you can be ahead of me because I'm in Wall Street. You can be going around your supermarket and you can see that something is selling and you can ask your friends, oh, yes, yeah, we've got that and so on. And it takes six months, he said, before that gets to the street. And, you know, and that's our position really with the chemical industry. You know, we know in, in sort of early part of this year, we began to say to our clients, look, I'm afraid there's going to be a recession. And, you know, nobody else, was, it's impossible. Yeah, inflation may go up a bit, but it's no, you know, we said no, no. But now, you know, six, coming up to six months later, people are beginning to talk about it, you know. And so the, the one thing I would counsel people is to have faith in your judgment. My example, my first trade, had I been on my own at that point, I would have sold. Okay, I'd have gone from two and a half thousand to three and a half thousand, say, if I'd be lucky, but I wouldn't have gone to five thousand. Once you've got confidence, you've got to say, does the person who's talking to me about this and telling me I'm wrong, do they know as much as I do? Have they spotted something I haven't? Because if they can't tell you what they think you've got wrong, well, they're probably wrong. Paul, it has been such a pleasure catching up with you. Thank you for sharing all your wisdom and experience with us. Well, thank you very much for the invitation, Maggie. All right, that's a wrap on this week's edition of My Life in Four Trades. For more on the series, visit realvision.com forward slash my life in four trades. Make sure to use the numeral four. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.